The Water Values Podcast, Session 83. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Gabe McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. And thank you to the anonymous person out there who gave the podcast another five-star rating on iTunes. Really appreciate that. Would also appreciate it if you if you feel so inclined to, uh, when you're rating the podcast on iTunes, to also give a review of the podcast on iTunes. That's just a great way to help others find out about the podcast. Uh, do that on tu- on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory on which you listen to the podcast. So thanks so much. Again, really appreciate that. Well, I recently had the privilege of moderating a panel on water conservation at the American Bar Association's 34th Annual Water Law Conference in Austin, Texas. It was an absolutely fantastic panel. Uh, The panelists were tremendous. Uh, There was Pat Mulroy, who's, of course, the uh, former general manager for the Southern Nevada Water Authority, and now she's keeping even busier in retirement with positions at UNLV Boyd School of Law, Brookings Institution, among others. Uh, there's also Vale Thorne, who's a senior environmental health and safety counsel with Coca-Cola Company. And, uh, of course, Robert Puente, the president and CEO of the San Antonio Water System, uh, he comes on. He makes his second appearance on the Water Values podcast. So uh, you can see it was a fantastic panel. And I want to thank the American Bar Association and each of those panelists who allowed the session to be recorded and authorized it for release on the podcast. So today we're bringing you the recording of just the Q&A portion of the panel. The entire panel ran an hour and 15 minutes, and so we uh, excised out kind of the presentations. Of course, those had PowerPoints and things like that in certain cases, so they wouldn't probably be good for for a podcast anyway. But uh, for brevity's sake, we're bringing you the Q&A portions, and it's you'll really like what uh, what they have to say, especially the passion really comes through uh, in, in these folks, these great panelists, and, and their dedication and passion for water. So even with this abridged version, the Q&A lasted for 35 minutes. Uh, so I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to dispense with takeaways and things like that at the end, at the back end, uh, in order to maximize the time you get to hear these great panelists and have them answer questions about water and water conservation. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. We're going to have moderated Q&A right now for a little bit, but my first question is actually going to be to you all. And that question is, who all believes that conservation is really a demand side issue? Let's see a show of hands. So everyone thinks it's a supply side issue? It's conservation, conservation primary. So most people think it's a demand side issue. Well, good, because one of the, one of the things I was going to ask, uh, I'll start off with Robert about, was a source of supply that's actually before it hits the consumer's water meter, and that's non-revenue water. So, Robert, can you talk a little about non-revenue water and what exactly it is and how it can be an additional source of supply? Well, non-revenue water obviously is the water that you don't get to sell. For whatever reason, you lose it. Uh, And in our system, uh, although we are within industry standards, we pride ourselves in trying to be better than average. So it is uh, quite, uh, uh, it's a big issue for us. It's about 15% uh, 
So you imagine uh, Coke. If you had Coke at a grocery store and they lost 15% of their inventory, uh, how difficult uh, that would be and how much attention you would want to give it. And so at, in San Antonio, we're very, very concerned about non-revenue water. We're doing everything we can. We have isolated departments. Their, their sole job is to uh, look at non-revenue water, uh, how it's happening. A lot of it is just basic leaks. Uh, we have 26 million feet of water mains uh, underground. You don't get to see it. You don't know necessarily there's a leak until it's a very obvious leak. And so these small, almost pinhole type of leaks you'll never ever see. So we have a lot of different programs, a lot of different issues to try to get a handle on that non-revenue water. We are seeing it drop down uh, year by year, but it's a very small increments. It's something that is uh, just, that we're putting a lot of attention on, spending a lot of money on uh, currently, because we know that that is something that's on our back, on the utilities back to do it, to do it properly. Sure, and if you don't think non-revenue water is a big deal, in the White House's moonshot for water, that budget request, uh, a lot of that budget request is aimed at non-revenue water, better materials for pipes so it won't leak, and a smart water network. So non-revenue water is a big deal, and I think Robert's exactly right there. Uh, Pat, you're, you're my next question. Uh, both you and Robert indicated significant drops in water consumption during significant periods of growth. Could you talk a little about uh, the financial planning for that and also the messaging to the public for how rates are gonna be, gonna be charged? Well, because of the growth, rates were really stable. I mean, that was the flip side. We had some, we've got some very high connection charges. So all new development um, really was more than paying their own way and it helped stabilize water rates. I mean, we went through a 10-year period where we never raised water rates, not once, because of all the growth that was happening and the increase in demand. Now, that having been said, when that growth goes away, that's when your problems start and the connection charges disappear. I mean, all that turf removal was essentially paid for by new development, and that made the messaging to the public much, much easier because those that were moving in were paying to help the conservation effort. They were the ones that were paying to essentially create the new resource. Now, there were stubborn people, my husband being one of them, who were native Nevadans who said, when the last Californian moves back to California and you still have a water problem, talk to me. We still took our grass out. Vale, can you talk a little about, you mentioned social license to operate, and I wanna uh, talk a little about how you interact with the communities you go into in terms of you know, what is your approach. Uh, you, for example, you mentioned China and, having, and they want to know exactly how you're going to use water and what the efficiency is going to be on that water and things of that nature. So how, what's your approach when you go in uh, as a user of water uh, to make your case, so to speak, that you should be entrusted with that public resource? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, we, um, we deal with the community as a whole. We don't just deal with um, sort of the government officials. They're very, very important. 
but we also identify who the community leaders are, um, you know, in the NGO community, um, you know, uh, as well as, you know, sort of in the, just the community at large, so we're dealing with everybody. Also, we try and go in with information. We don't just show up and go, hey, we're, you know, we're the guys. Usually that uh, water risk assessment that I've talked about, which is where we've um, examined the sustainability of the water sources in the local area, we're walking in the, to them with information is trying to be uh, of help and trying to say, um, you know, here's what we know. We want to share this with you. And then the third element to it is, um, you know, we, we want to be partners. We want to partner with you we want, and we want to, um, you know, work with you so that everybody's water is sustainable over the long term. We don't want to impact, we want to prove to them we, we don't want to negatively impact the water source, whether it's about quantity or quality. We want to show to them how we're, that's going to happen. And, um, and then, as I said, the most important thing is that we want to stay engaged and, and be partners with them. So it's a holistic approach. Sure. And so, I'll, Robert, I'll come back to you now. So uh, you mentioned that the San Antonio water system, conservation is part of your business model. And I, I'd like to explore that concept a little more. Is water... Is, is conservation a, an ethos-dependent structure, or is it price-dependent? Because we, we've talked a lot about water is very cheap. Uh, and I just, I'd like to explore that concept a little more. Sue, so can you can explain the business model that, that SAWS is working under, please? Um, it's something very simple to where if you do convince your customers to buy less of your product, yes, you will have less revenue coming in. So you need something to stabilize that revenue, if not increase that revenue. And as Pat mentioned, that is growth. So we're very lucky in San Antonio that we've been growing, not to the tremendous uh, numbers that they've been growing maybe in, in Nevada. We have had rate increases uh, during uh, this time period that we've uh, dropped down our per capita use. But these rate increases also are a water conservation tool. Uh, if something costs you more, you, you're more likely to look at it and see how, you, how are you using it but also the way you, you charge for water. We had a four-year, four-tiered system. The more water you use, the more expensive it got per unit. And that's something that the industry picked up on very quickly. Well, just last year, we changed from four uh, tiers to eight tiers. And we found out that at a certain point, like 12,000 gallons per month, is when a lot of people uh, started using a lot more water at that point. So we thought if we give them this price signal at that point, that's when they'll really either plateau there or actually start using less. And so that uh, was implemented this January, so this summer we'll see how well it works. What we also did on that lowest tier, we understood that um, uh, water is life, water is uh, your right to life, as, as you mentioned. But for some people, that is true. They, they can not easily absorb rate increases. So what we did for them was a lifeline rate. If you kept your use uh, 3,000 gallons a month or less, your, your rates actually went down. Everybody else's went up during that rate increase, but yours went down. And so this was not only for the low-income people, but for those people that historically wanted to use less water, we wanted to give them a reward. Essentially, they were confused. Why am I always being charged more? using less. And so if you do use a certain amount, 3,000 gallons per month, whether you were wealthy or not, your rates would go down. So that's something that we also wanted to implement. 
So for us, yes, it's, a, it's part of our ethic there in San Antonio. Uh, at SAWS, when we were created, we were created uh, in the early 1990s. Three different uh, city agencies were brought together, separated from the city. We have our separate governing body. But part of our uh, ordinance creating us that we had to have an education department. So we have employees that are actually school teachers and they go into the community and uh, teach water issues and mostly water conservation issues. So from the first grade uh, through high school, we have an education program for them. And so this has been something that's, that's been uh, a big part of San Antonio. And what we have, we have found out also is that you cannot mandate water conservation. You have to have a tremendous amount of buy-in. So it's essentially uh, a stool, three stools of education, um, acceptance by the community, in other words, a lot of outreach, and eventually uh, you do put it in writing, you put it, make it part, you make it part of your, your code, your city code. For example, um, home builders. Uh, we found out in certain parts of the city where there's a lot of rock, very little topsoil, they were just throwing the, the grass on top of the, uh, the rock, essentially, selling it to the homeowner, and it was impossible for the homeowner unless they used a lot of water to keep it looking nice. And so we worked with the home building industry that if they would put four inches of topsoil, we would give them a, a rebate, an incentive, pay for part of that. And they bought off on it, so they were educated. And now it's a city ordinance. They don't get their uh, certificate, they don't get their meter box unless we uh, inspect and there is four inches of topsoil. So now that's part of the home building industry. That incentive that they got, they either keep for their property or they pass it on to their homeowner. So those kinds of things always work out well. Just this year, our board uh, awarded its largest rebate to a private company, a quarter of a million dollars, to a laundromat company. Uh, very big customers like hotels, the, 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 cloth, the tablecloths that you see there, where we essentially help them buy a $2 million washing machine, quarter of a million dollars, our, our, our contribution for that. But that machine uses so much less water that essentially the payback for them and the payback for SAWS is a relatively short period of time, about three or four years. So those types of incentives have also been put in place where, as a matter of fact, Coca-Cola uh, takes advantage of our rebate programs in San Antonio, Frito-Lay, uh, AT&T, all of these private companies receive our ratepayer dollars to use less water. So it's a big, big issue in San Antonio, something that we're very proud of. We always uh, compare ourselves to other cities, make sure our per capita use stays down. Sure, Pat, I saw you nodding in agreement on some of those things. Do you have uh, some additional information that you might be able to share on that topic? Yeah, I've got some pretty strong feelings about the whole role of pricing in water conservation. It's a reminder, but it is not something you can put all your eggs into that bucket. Um, it has some enormous social implications, and whether it's what Robert did here, did in San Antonio with the lifeline rate or whether it's some other equalizer, how many tiers you have and how you price it is very much a reflection of that particular community's climate, usage patterns, soil conditions, lots of different factors. But you have to be able to look at your customers in the eye, whether they are wealthy or whether they are um, in the lower third of the income bracket and have some integrity around what you're pricing them. 
And this is where it's time in this country that we have a different conversation. The way most municipal utilities are structured, it's a backdoor tax. If I go up into the Northeast, and this is especially prevalent on the East Coast, not so much on the West Coast where you have districts that have statutory self-sustaining integrity, but why do we have the infrastructure problem that we have? In many of, whether it's a Chicago, whether it's a, sometimes Boston, you go around the country and you start seeing decaying infrastructure because it was invisible. And the way it works is you are a department in the city, you request your dollars at the beginning of, during the budget cycle, you get your money. If you don't spend it all by the end of that year, it gets swept back into the city or county's general fund. You cannot run a utility like that. How do you build up reserves for an, an, uh, an aggressive asset management program? How do you maintain the system that you have when you don't know how much revenue you have coming in? And why is it that the customer in the United States doesn't see their water bill as a utility bill the same way they see their power bill or their gas bill or their cell phone bill or their cable bill? They see it as a tax. Why? Because it was used as a tax. It supported police, it supported fire, it supported parks, and all kinds of other municipal services. And in this discussion, and I know that the White House has had this infrastructure advisory committee going, and it, I've been, we've introduced that concept to them. If there's going to be some financial help to help rebuild America's deteriorating water infrastructure, which in many places is at the root of the problems around conservation, it's that non-revenue water, it's that leaking water, it's that lost water, then we have to change what a real not-for-profit public utility is. It has to be self-sustaining financially. It has to run in many ways the way an investor-owned utility works, which is it knows what revenue it's coming in, it has, it can build reserves, it can function in a much more robust way than it does today. When water was easy, it was a service being provided, there were no complications around it. You didn't have to worry about the resource, you didn't have to worry about conservation. And if you lost 40% of your water, which may sound outrageous here, but does exist in many parts of the United States, it was no big deal. Those have to change. If we're gonna get serious about conservation, get serious about pricing, then there's a responsibility on our part to change how we financially manage the utilities. And I think, David, that's one reason uh, <clears throat> our water utility has been successful is because although <clears throat> we are a public utility, part of the city, we have been separated from the city. We have our own governing board. They are appointed by our city council. We are totally autonomous as far as how we spend our money, the projects we want to pursue, the things we want to put importance. We have our own legal department, our own HR department. But even with all that, I think we're better stewards of that resource and better idea about <clears throat> reserves that she's talked about, about all these other issues that we can put that importance on. And admittedly, we do have to go in front of our city council for rate increases, but we have, uh, we believe we've done our homework to where what we present to them 
is essentially the cost of service, that there's no issues of hidden tax of we're going to pay for this or, or that out of it. They do get to see it. They don't set our budget, but they do get to set our rates. That's some terrific commentary. I've got one more question for Vale, and then we'll open it up for audience Q&A. Uh, vale, you indicated that uh, during Coca-Cola's look at its water efficiency that you've been able to drive it down, at least in the United States, to about one to one and a half is the ratio. How much more efficiency can we squeeze out of the out, out of water? Are we going to be able to approach a one to one ratio, or where are we where are we going to get to the point where where there's just no more efficiencies to be had? I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question just yet. I mean, we all know that once you get to about 95 percent efficiency in anything coming out of the pipe or whatever, it gets very expensive. Um, so, but we, you know, we have people thinking about that. But one thing we are so to, to get to be able to get more efficient, if you will, is okay. Should we be discharging all that wastewater? In other words, that's next. That's the next thing. That's probably the next phase for us. Should should it be all that wastewater I talked about be going out the door, or should we be retreating it and reusing it inside? And we have some projects along those lines um, where we're actually uh, are reusing it. Um, not in this country yet, because most people won't find that acceptable for social reasons. But, um, but in many other countries, we are not in product yet, because many governments won't allow us to do it. But we all know that we can get it to the point where we can use it in product without any, any problems. Um, that's exactly what Pat and uh, Robert do every day, and we all drink it. Um, so, you know, we're doing those kinds of things. I don't, but I don't think we know the answer to that question. We just, we're working on it. I think it's a function of technology's development, too. Yep. I mean, yep. it's amazing to me the, you know, exponential progress that's been made in a short 15-year period around water efficiency, whether it's your in-home appliances, your washing machines, your dishwashers, your faucets, your shower heads, or whether it's in the area of leak detection. I mean, because we only get four inches of rain a year, and that's in a wet year, and it all falls in 48 hours, and then we're done with the rainy season. <laughs> but when you only have that much, and you have a teeny tiny share of the Colorado River, water efficiency in your own system, especially when you're going out asking your community to conserve, becomes real important. So we've drilled down our system. We're down at 5% in leak on the distribution side and 1% in the transmission side. So we've really drilled down. But you can now put a sensor, for example, you can imagine our most vulnerable pipe is the one that serves the Las Vegas Strip. God for help the general manager if that one goes down. So you put a 24-7 leak detection into that pipe to where on the SCADA system you can sit and you can start seeing pressure changes and you know you've got a problem. So you can send the crews out before it ruptures, before there's a problem. That kind of technology is being developed constantly, whether it's your quality sensors, whether it's your um, leak sensors. And so we've gotten really active in promoting and incubating um, new technology and new innovation to drive this process, to make it more robust to make those advances happen faster, because I th really think we're falling behind. While the population is doing this, we're having a hard time keeping up. Yeah. Well, I mean, we agree, I agree with that about technology. I mean, just a simple fix for us is, 
and many businesses, um, you know, people have to rinse things to clean things out, whether you're making a microchip plant or, or, or whether you're making Coca-Cola. Most people use water for that. Well, the simple fix is you don't anymore. You use an air rinser, I mean, you know, which basically blows everything out of there. But you're, you're, you're completely right. I mean, and that's the technological part. And we've got this belief that the only thing that uses water that we export is like a Coca-Cola or agriculture. Well, I got news for you. That lithium battery in your phone exactly. takes a whole, whole lot, lot more, more water. water than that loaf of bread that you, you're eating that's being exported or that case of Coca-Cola. I mean, when Tesla opened in northern yep. Nevada, their big lithium battery plant, that plant will use as much water as all of Carson City. Yep. I assume all We have no clue yeah. how much... <laughs> This technology manufacturing uses. I, I assume all of us have an electronic device, right? Whether it's a phone or whatever. <laughs> Every microchip is about 1,400 gallons of water to produce it. Yep. And ethanol. Yep. Uh, corn requires a lot oh, of water. Oh, please, not the <laughs> ethanol story. Now, there was, a, there was a dumb idea. Let's grow our way out of the energy crisis. <laughs> Well, let's open it up to some audience Q&A. Uh, microphone's right up there, so let's have our first question. I'm with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I'd like to say that I lived in Las Vegas from 2001 to 2004. I uh, lived through Pat Mulroy's um, excellent uh, conservation, excellent effort. I'd like to really thank you for everything you've done for the last 15 years and more. I wish we could do more here in Texas and throughout the country. Um, I have tried to continue your efforts. I um, have interaction with applicants who come in who are trying to build more reservoirs um, throughout North Texas. And um, obviously, I take a completely neutral um, approach to that. Um, there's my disclaimer. Um, and, um, you know, we take in the applications and we make our judgments. Um, but what I try to convey is the importance of conservation. And it seems that we have a, a mindset um, that things that work other places won't work in Texas. I practiced in Dallas, I uh, moved around, I moved out to Las Vegas, and I saw the real impact that your efforts um, really took, took hold there. And so what I have done is suggest to other people that they look at what Las Vegas did and what Southern California has done. They also have done a lot of good um, conservation efforts. And when I suggest to people things like taking out their lawn or that municipalities can pay um, to have lawns taken out or some of the other efforts that you instituted, um, I actually built a house in uh, Las Vegas during that time period. And my husband loved it because he didn't have a lawn to mow. So, um, you know, those are good things. There's actually good things for not having a lawn. So what can you do to really help us drive home these concepts of conservation? Because it's great in concept, but really getting people to take hold of the ideas is difficult. Um, in day-to-day -day life, it's really a difficult concept. So Pat, you've been through the war. Right. And you survived it. So what can you tell us to really help our clients and the people in our communities to, to really take this all to heart? 
I think what Robert said is at the heart of it. It is a three-legged stool. And first and most importantly, there has to be a reason for people to change. People hate change. And the older we get, the more we hate change. So forget the over 60 crowd. You'll get them to go along grudgingly. The other one is that it is a considered a fair and equitable system in that there is a financial nudge, not a sledgehammer, but a nudge. And key to this is education. I mean, in Southern Nevada, the concept of desert landscaping was rock, a cactus, and a dead cow skull. That's how people envisioned desert landscaping. So we, in, we built a desert demonstration garden. We built a botanical garden to show them just how beautiful it could be. We started having contests among homeowners who had converted, who had, did the best job in beautifying. There are, it's a, it is a mosaic of very many pieces that have to come together to persuade your community that it's important, that their efforts make a difference, that you help them financially, and you nudge them gently through your pricing structure. Next question. I'd first like to thank Mr. Thorne and the Coke Company. They are a great um, partner of ours in a way. They do uh, great work in conserving their water. And we didn't know each other would be here. No. <laughs> um, and also, I, I'd like to say that we appreciate the work that San Antonio has done with their conservation easements and the way in which they use protect their underground water. And we've, we've done great work with, in, with the city of San Antonio. I think they do fantastic work. And one of the things that I was interested to hear at the beginning, as you all described conservation, is that it was all the, the initial descriptions were all on the demand side. And one of the challenges that we have at the Nature Conservancy is we see water as a natural resource. And we see very much the cycle of water conservation as that it has to be on the entirety, that it's not just the supply, the, the substance. And I was of water, as you described, um, Patricia, the idea of decoupling the pricing from the infrastructure and the actual supply, the volume that you use, seems like a fantastic um, way in which you could you know, value the volume that people use. And it made me wonder why people um, can't, why we are having, we at the Nature Conservancy are having such a challenging time getting those who spend so much money on gray infrastructure, as we call it, um, to understand the value that green infrastructure can provide. We're spending a lot of money in our organization to value, to identify how green infrastructure can be less expensive than, green, than gray infrastructure. So by green infrastructure, do you mean green space, open space? The, we mean the ways in which you, that, uh, for instance, if you have uh, Yes, open space, the way in which water can be cleansed in, in, by forests and, and open space, that water can be cleansed in those spaces more, less expensively than if you have a water treatment plant. In the well, way, in the instance, desert, the, the last thing we want is green space. Pardon? 
in the desert, the last thing we right, want not is in more the desert. Right, green but in space. the Northeast, perhaps, or in, in other locations. So not in your area, of course. Well, I'm going to push back a little because there need to be some changes around the Clean Water Act for that to be workable. Philadelphia tried and is still trying, and the Clean Water they abut they butt their head against the regulatory part of the Clean Water Act. Now, unless the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act join the 21st century and join a world of changing weather patterns, changing climate, I'm not sure the rest of us are going to be able to adapt as quickly as we need to adapt. I mean, I've said it's like using a 1972 Ford Mustang manual to fix a Toyota Prius. It's not going to work. I'm not sure I know what you mean by that in, in terms of Philadelphia. Because you can the way the that act is being applied, now yeah. whether it's a change in the regulatory mindset or whether it's an actual legal change, it, it abuts its head up against the implementation of green infrastructure because it's wastewater applied within the urban area at a certain quality. And you butt your head up against it every single time. I guess we all do. And we're having some success in Washington, D.C. with a stormwater retention um, fund that we're experiencing, some good success there. And I think that others have seen that in other areas as well. They're sort of replacing the stormwater runoff problems that a lot of people are having. And I was wondering if that's a, a plan that you think others might begin to turn to, seeing that as an initial way in which people could start to use as a, a first small step in the way of replacing sort of gray and traditional infrastructure with green infrastructure. It's a piece of the puzzle. I, I just, I have just listened to um, my peers both within AMWA and um, within, within the wastewater agencies frustration with trying to do the right thing, trying to maximize the use of green infrastructure, and running into a buzzsaw with the Clean Water Act, whether it's on the stormwater side or on the wastewater side. I have a question for Robert. Uh, he had a really nice uh, figure that showed the uh, gallons per capita per day decline over a specified period of time. I think it was from like 240 to 121. And I was wondering if you could just comment briefly on um, uh, what was the population change over that, that general period of time, and do you expect that trend to continue? And is it mostly, I guess a couple questions, is it uh, mostly related to conservation, or are there other elements uh, that contribute to that, that water demand decline? And I guess lastly, the other part of the question is, um, what sector is responsible for the greatest decline? Is it industrial or is it uh, the residential? If you can comment on that, thank um, you. <clears throat> your first question about our population was, we went from about 800,000 to about a million point seven, so almost a million more people. Uh, as mentioned before, this growth allows you to have con a continuous water conservation. But, uh, and don't go away, I don't remember all of your questions. <laughs> as I think you had two or, two or three there. Um, and so our, our population uh, did uh, massively increase, so we're roughly using the same amount of water today as we did when we first started. Now that per capita use uh, went down because of a lot of different things that we did. It wasn't just those things that you always hear about. 
of turning off the water when you're brushing your teeth, of full load in the dishwasher. Those were all very important and those were all helped out. But it was also on our side, on the utility side, uh, for example, willing to spend money to create a, a system around our, our city of a purple pipe of delivery of, of treated wastewater, recycled water to different industrial customers. Uh, Toyota, Microsoft, all of the golf, golf courses are treated with recycled water. So that was part of it, uh, if you consider that water conservation. Another water conservation, for example, was our underground storage of water. Uh, if um, we, we spent money on that, we built that. So what we don't use, we still keep, we still capture and just put it away for another uh, day. And I'm sorry, what was your last question? You may have answered it, but I was asking about the sectors, the different sectors of water demand and where you saw maybe the greatest, oh. and where you project perhaps the greatest decline in water use in the near um, future. Th that drop, a lot of that drop was indoor use and the other uh, big utility type of uh, projects that we had, that was uh, indoor use. Uh, rebates on toilets, dishwashers, washing machines. Uh, we discontinued all those programs already, by the way, because there are no longer any uh, washing machines, commodes that use a lot of water in San Antonio. They've all been replaced. Uh, we also had, at the time, a, a commode where if you, uh, we didn't ask you to go buy a commode and we give you a rebate. We actually told you we would buy the commodes and you just come pick it up. If you couldn't, if you didn't have a truck, we would deliver it for you. If you didn't know how to install it, we would hire a plumber to install it for you. If you had a floorboard that was rotted out because of prior leaks, we would hire a plumber to fix that up, shore it up, because all of this cost was cheaper than buying a new water source. So now what we're concentrating on is outdoor use, uh, irrigation systems. Every new home in San Antonio, 99 out of 100, are built with an irrigation system. And so uh, that technology is improving, uh, rain sensors, uh, proper use of heads, even changing the times that you water, uh, uh, not at midnight and two o'clock in the morning because we found out that if that happened and you had a broken sprinkler head, you never knew about it because it turned off by itself by morning time and it would drain away, the water would go away and you never really knew you had a problem. So now it's, uh, we've even changed those times for our big gain now our big gains to be had now are an outdoor use irrigation of lawns. And not just irrigation of lawns, but also programs as uh, rebates to uh, take out some of your turf. Terrific, well, we have run out of time. I know we have a couple more folks who have questions. I'm sure our panelists will uh, be able to take a little bit of time after the session ends to answer those questions. But I just wanna thank our panelists for a fantastic presentation. Uh, Hope you enjoyed that Q&A section of the American Bar Association's 34th Annual Water Law Conference uh, panel on water conservation. A huge thank you to the American Bar Association and to Pat Mulroy, Vale Thorne, and Robert Puente for being terrific panelists. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 83. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at the water values. You can tweet at me at DTM1993 and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And as I indicated at the top, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory on which you listen to the podcast. And please tell your friends about the podcast. And also you can sign up for the water values newsletter 
at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.